tonight, like I said, we're going to finish uh, the, our look at the Beatitudes uh, from Matthew 5, what David just read. There's three things I want us to kind of pause and linger on, and we'll be done. The first is character. What is it? What is character? The second is how does character form or be transformed? Which is really the question like, what's your entry point to this stuff? How can you grow and change? And then finally, the heart of kingdom character. What's the heart, the essence of the character that Jesus is describing? Let's pray before we do that. Oh Jesus, our hopes are really pinned on you. Uh, showing up, you lending your strength and your power, you being king and protecting us from all kinds of stuff, distraction, just not knowing how to connect the dots, my lack of clarity. I pray that you would protect your people. I pray that you would gather your people. I pray that you would come in power and even let this be another little way that you transform and change our character that we would more and more reflect heaven on earth. And uh, we need this, and you're good to provide this, so we ask it in your name, amen. Well, I came across a headline in Vice News that I was looking at lately, and um, this is the title of it. Uh, I read it because of the title, Failed Utopias Throughout History, an account of the evil and righteous attempts to create the perfect society that were all fantastically unsuccessful. Um, so most of us know what the word utopia means. It's basically like an attempt to create the perfect society, right? Like where, there's, where no bad is allowed in. Well, this Vice article was basically a, a, a visual guide to some of the most infamous attempts at utopia in the past several hundred years um, around. And so uh, there was one group, a few of the more notable ones. There was a group of people called the Caledonians. They were 1,200 in number, they were Scottish, and they sailed to establish a new community and a new life in Panama about 150 years ago that lasted about two years. <laughs> uh, there was Fordlandia, which was humbly named by Henry Ford, in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. Uh, the Amazon rainforest had the trees that you get rubber from that he needed for his tires for his cars, and so he wanted to build basically a utopian city in the middle of the Amazon rainforest to get villagers from the surrounding region to go live there. So he built hundreds of houses, um, city squares, swimming pools at a lot of the houses. And I think we're talking in the 30s or 40s, like electricity, plumbing. He wanted everything that they needed or could ever want to be present in that little self-contained city. So I read on and it was like there's hippie communes, there's like little socialist experiments where everybody shares everything, there's religious cults, there's weird stuff, like really weird stuff. But what they all had in common, regardless of whether it was a religious sect or some other like political thing trying to create a utopia, what they all had in common was that dream that we could start over, that we could go somewhere and arrange things in such a way that I could get a new start and kind of leave the baggage and all the junk back wherever we came from. So like for the Caledonians, it was leave the, the, class, the classism and the warfare back in Scotland. Leave the debts that they had back over there and go to this new land in Panama. 
Other, other people were on the run from other things, crime, poverty, illiteracy, unemployment. Whatever the problems were, the utopia promised a new start, a new humanity for a lot of them, a new way of doing life. Look, a quick question before we go on. What's our connection point to this? Because, like, look, none of us are, like, moving out to places and trying to build little villages with each other. Like, Pineview is a close attempt at this, but it's not there yet, and no one would describe it as a utopia. (laughs) Why the desire? What I didn't know until I read the article was these little communities have been getting built since, like, thousands of years before Christ. I thought it was a more recent phenomenon. Why these things? Um, First, because you and I and every other human being knows we were made for a different world, right? And this is where we bear the image of God, that seed of religion in every human heart that knows I have a maker and knows there's something wrong. The world is not supposed to be this way. So I think that's why we dream. It's an appropriate dream for a new earth that's renewed, restored, that all the bad is gone. I mean, the Bible, that's what the Bible talks about. So I think that's a big reason why. Also, historically, these little utopian projects really shot up and spiked uh, during the centuries of the Enlightenment. I'm not a historian. I wasn't even a history major. So I'm like out of my depth here, so I'm going to tread lightly. Uh, I at least know this. The Enlightenment was such a massive kind of cultural movement in the West, of which you and I are products, over the past several hundred years. And the message that it really massaged into everybody in your family tree, and therefore it's in your bloodstream, the message that it massaged into us is we can engineer our way to heaven on earth, or we can educate our way to heaven on earth. Um, we can research or study our way to heaven on earth. And whatever the little sect or tribe or people group was, they would define heaven on earth differently. Heaven on earth might be people just like you, who look just like you, or believe just like you. But that was really the, that was really the, the message of the Enlightenment, is we can bring heaven down through technology, medicine, research, education. And it's not just the, the Vice article stuff that went fantastically unsuccessful, but we have the privilege of getting to be alive at a point where even uh, present people are looking back to the Enlightenment and saying, well, that kind of didn't produce what it promised either. That didn't deliver what it promised either, that utopian vision. And a lot of these things actually brought this dystopian disaster of one sort or another. And here's why. Because all of those different projects operated under the principle of if if I rearrange my outsides, it will rearrange my insides. If I get all the stuff external, like all of the things outside of me in a row, organized, lined up, perfect, it'll change me on the inside too. Here's an example, just if this is sounding too philosophical. Like, we still think this way, because we're downstream of all this stuff. Um, Do you think like me if I get a new daily routine, a new friend group, a new diet, a new workout regimen? It's not just that I'll eat healthier or be more fit. It's like, I'll be a new me, right? We put really big hopes in this stuff. 
we think if I change my outsides, it'll change my insides. But you probably know by this point in your life it doesn't work that way. True and lasting change always has to start on the inside and then seep out to the outside, right? It's got to start with the heart, the motivations, the desires. Um, some of y'all who just moved to town know this because everything in your life just changed. Literally every external just changed. Unless you're still in Athens and this is where you lived before. But for the rest of you, everything just changed. And have you, like three or four weeks in, have you begun to, to, to hear kind of home calling, like all of the, the baggage or the habits or the patterns or the laziness or the procrastination or the insecurity or the social fear? Have you, have you heard it coming back? We can change all of our outsides, but it doesn't change our insides. It's got to start at the heart and radiate its way outward. I want you, though, to consider something before we get into this passage. I want to encourage you, don't give up on the dream of the utopia. Pretty much everybody has, right? Oh, that's a pipe dream. That's naive. Let me, let me twist it and give it back to you and ask you to hold on to this tightly. What if God is actually doing something similar to what all these people were trying to do around the world through the years of a new start, a new you, a new humanity that's new from the inside out. And what if he's doing it the right way? Like what if he's transforming people's hearts and minds and then they start acting and behaving and wanting differently because of that? And what if this kingdom that he's building, this new place that he's building, is the real deal? What if it's accessible to someone like you? And I get it. I don't know a lot of you who are newer to RUF yet, so I realize what I'm saying. What if it's accessible to you wherever you are with God? What if there's almost a low bar of entrance because it's a kingdom for the spiritually poor who don't have it, for, the, for those who mourn, for those who hunger for God's righteousness. And what if it's an outward-facing kingdom? That's not like, let's retreat to a holy huddle and get out of the world like every one of these communes and utopias was. But what if it's a transformed people that are spun back around and sent deeper into their campus, their dorm, their neighborhood, Athens? What if that's what this is really all about? I think Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount that we're talking about this fall, I think he is laying out the blueprints for this kingdom that he's, ser that he's deadly serious about, that he knew he was going to begin to establish and plant. And he knew he's three years before his crucifixion when he's going to be killed innocently, for sins he didn't commit, sins you and I committed. He was dying in our place. He's three years from that moment and when he'll raise up again in victory over death and over sin and over guilt and all those things. And he is looking out to the future that that crucifixion and resurrection will effect or catalyze or bring to fruition. Jesus is describing what N.T. Wright, I think, put better than anybody I've ever heard it put. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch us off of earth and whisk us away to heaven, 
but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That's what the kingdom of God, that's what God is intending to do through his kingdom. Not like, you know, gather all his people up and fly us out to somewhere else, but to colonize a dark and broken and wayward world with the life and the love and the power of heaven. That's the kingdom. That's what we're talking about. How do we know this is true? Think uh, a, a couple of weeks from now, we'll talk about the passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, his disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he says, okay, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, how holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth? In Athens? In your house? As it is in heaven. That prayer is asking God to invade earth with heaven, to colonize your life with his life, with the life of heaven. Jesus starts his prayer of begging God to bring his kingdom with those words. And everybody knows, I mean, it's insulting almost to have to say this, but like everybody knows the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of buildings and castles and governments and structures. It's a kingdom of new people with new character, right? I mean, that's what Jesus has been describing. I mean, we included the first couple of verses of his uh, teaching on the mountain. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach him, and he said, and the, the verses before this and this, what's, what did he say first? What did he describe first? The transformed character of the people of the kingdom of God, people who've been colonized by the life of God, by the life of heaven, people who've been transformed by his grace. Well, what do we mean by this? Richard Sibbs is an old Puritan pastor back in the day, and he said of a friend of his who had just died, he was, he was eulogizing him, and he said, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. That's what we're talking about. The Beatitudes are describing what it looks like for heaven to be in you before you're ever in heaven. For this kingdom to come now in your attitudes, in my emotions, in my desires, my loves and my hates, and for it to start gaining territory and gaining ground in the here and now. Not one day when I die and go to be with Jesus, but Jesus coming here now and building this in us now. Transformed character. We said that was one of the things we wanted to slow down and think about tonight, right? What is character? Better yet, um, I mean, that's philosophical. Here's a phrase that you and I actually do say often in everyday life. We say things like, oh dude, that guy's solid. He's got solid character. Or you have to get a character reference, like someone's wanting to work at a camp or an internship and you get the email. Can you provide a character reference for so-and-so? And you fill that out. How do you answer the question, does so-and-so have character? Or when you're filling out her form and it's asking, please describe her character, and you're like, um, how honest am I supposed to be? Like, she's a good, I mean, she's like a good person, but like, what kind of details do you want? Because I got the details. Would you say she has character or would you say she doesn't? 
Would you say you have character? Who would you say has character? And what is it? When we say those phrases like, so-and-so has character, or I can vouch for his character, it, when you think about it, we're not saying their character is perfect, right? I mean, because we wouldn't be able to ever say that about anybody. But we're saying it's there. There's an integrity on their insides, right? Um, think about it like this. Saying that you have character is, is like saying that you have a garden which is a different thing than saying I have tomatoes and squash and beans and onions and carrots. But to say that I have a garden means that I've got a place where there are seeds that are very much alive and are very much growing. And maybe the tomatoes aren't there yet. Maybe the fruit hasn't fully come yet. Maybe it's gonna be a few months in our lives. Maybe it's gonna be a few more decades before this fruit fully ripens and is fully visible but the seed is there, the energy is there, life is there, and it's on the move. So when you hear us talking in the, in the next few minutes, when we actually get a little bit into the weeds about what this character is, I want you to think about it that way, not in a binary way. Some of you have very sensitive consciences, and you, like me, would sit there and be like, I have it or I don't. I don't feel spiritually poor enough. I don't know if I mourn enough, if I'm merciful enough. And I want you to think about it like a garden. Do you have a garden? Is kingdom life, are even seeds or seedlings or saplings of kingdom life alive in you and growing? Or do you not have a garden? Is there no life? There's no seeds. There's no growth. Is there any evidence of heaven colonizing your attitudes and emotions and thoughts and dreams? How does God produce this character or ripen this fruit? How does he transform you uh, so that we're people who increasingly reflect the life of heaven here in our lives on earth? So that we're people who are more and more characterized by the Beatitudes, which is what this little chunk of scripture is called. Um, and by the way, I should mention, these are kind of an all or nothing thing. The Beatitudes aren't like a, I'm hitting strong on like two out of seven. These are different facets of the same diamond. They're inseparable. They build on each other. Uh, it's a poverty of spirit that leads to a humility and an approachability. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mourning over your own sin and a hunger and thirst for more uh, righteousness that leads to you being a merciful person. So these character qualities, they're, they're, they're all there or they're all absent. The garden has all of these seeds growing or none of them. But how does God grow these things? How do these things grow? I would say this. This is a clunky sentence, but an important one. The way that God produces this changed character in us, it's a supernatural, extraordinary formation that happens through a natural and ordinary process. A supernatural and extraordinary formation that happens through a natural and an ordinary process. The supernatural part is this. We're gonna get theological for about 15 seconds, okay? The Bible says that when a weak little sinner looks to Jesus by, fit, by a desperate faith and says, I have no hope in myself, 
I'm not running to me to get me out of me or to get me out of the mess that I've made or my past, my present, my future. I'm running to him. I'm looking to you to be who you say you are. The Bible says when a person looks to God by faith for rescue, um, A, he enabled you to do that. His grace was already at work enabling you to look outside of yourself to help in another. B, he calls that regeneration. That's where the fundamental instantaneous shift of allegiances of your heart changes. It's a supernatural work. So you're not going to hear a sermon from me about how to, how to transform your heart. You can't. That's the problem. That's the poverty of spirit we're talking about. That's what sends us fleeing to Jesus. But when you do, he can do what's impossible for you. And, he, and through his spirit, he regenerates you. He makes you new. He resuscitates you and puts in you a new spirit and a new heart. So much so that the Bible would refer to you as a new creation. That's the supernatural, extraordinary regeneration. What's the natural? I mean, I guess we call it growth in grace. We call it discipleship. And there's a lot that we could say about discipleship and we'll say in the weeks ahead, but for tonight, the simple thing I want to leave you with is this. The process of discipleship or learning how to walk with God, learning how to grow and embrace this character of heaven inside of you, is, is though it's more than this, it's not less than just copying and mimicking. Now I'm talking to people where these seeds and saplings are already present and already alive, right? You can't copy your way into life. A dead person can't mimic a living person and say, I'm really working on it, I'm going to copy you. But a living person can copy and mimic another living person, right? It's how we learn everything in life. I didn't know this till I was a dad, but I got four little kids back home. The oldest is six. The youngest just turned two. Um, and here's what happens around our family when we're all hanging out or something. Like one of us, maybe me or Anna or Eli, will, the oldest one, will say something funny. And uh, Evangelina and Noah, the two younger ones, will just parrot the line that got the laugh. They'll just parrot it, and then they'll start belly laughing. And they'll say it over and over and over again. Stealing our best lines. But they'll just say that to try to get the laugh. They are learning humor by copying us. It's how they learned how to talk, too. Your first words, you didn't make them up. You copied them. It's some phrase you heard around your parents. Probably mortified them when they heard what your first word was. <laughs> but we learn by copying. Addie mothers her little baby dolls the way Anna mothers Addie. She says the same things to her. She holds her the same way. She feeds her the same meal. We learn human development happens by mimicry and copying, and a lot of spiritual development happens that way too. You might be more familiar with perhaps the, the way the Bible talks about this, of spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. Or the idea of faith becoming contagious and drawing other people, compelling other people towards it. Friends, because of what I'm saying, this is why we put in so much work to cultivate community groups. And this is why whatever local church you're visiting or are in has worked so hard and is pouring so many resources into their community groups. How are you supposed to grow? 
how is your character supposed to be transformed more and more and, and more and more look like Jesus when, you don't, when you're not in proximity to other people's lives? How are they supposed to spur you on towards greater love and deeds when you don't know them and they don't know you? How are you supposed to copy when there's no one to look at? When I was sitting in your seats as a grad student here at RUF and a brand new baby Christian, um, the way that I learned and grew like a weed those, that first year of being alive and regenerated um, was stuff like this. Um, how did I develop, I don't know, I, I wouldn't say how did I develop as if it's developed, but how did I learn how to have a heart for the poor? My friend Martin Davis and going to get lunch with him and watching what he did when inevitably downtown a homeless guy would stop us and ask for something and the rest of the meal I don't I don't have any recollection of what Martin and I ever talked about but I remember every single corner we were on when I saw him and it rubbed off on me because I went home thinking is that what Jesus is talking about about a heart and a love for the poor how did, I, uh, how did I ever learn and grow with a heart for evangelism and just throwing out the welcome mat to people who don't know God, who've never heard his voice, only heard the devil's voice about God? How did I develop that heart? Um, Andrew Terrell and Jonathan Davis over in Mandyville. I'd be in their living room, and they worked at Snelling, and, you know, those, like, weird little scrubs they all wear, and they would bring their coworkers over to hang out at the house after work. And we'd all be there till, like, 2 in the morning, and their house, if I've ever been in a house that was a colony, an outpost of heaven, it was that house filled with a bunch of RUF guys. And they loved those guys. They were so awkward. They were not like our kind of people. They were very different than us. They brought them over. And I'm sitting there getting more and more convicted and more and more creative about who could I invite to this? Because I got a lot of friends just like this. Who did I learn to open up and own my spiritual poverty in public from? Jason Bennett and the fraternity Bible study I was in. Up until that point in my life, I had never heard somebody put something consequential and vulnerable out for other people to see. Like one of those things you can never unsay. One of those things where everyone's like, ooh, this just got real. Jason modeled a big enough Jesus or having a big enough Jesus that you could trust other people seeing what he sees because you know he's washed you and cleaned you and freed you. I learned by copying those brothers, and many women along the way too. David Brooks was a, is a famous New York Times columnist. He's written a ton over the years. Um, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. Maybe he's, I don't know. But he wrote this book called The Road to Character, and he said this, character formation occurs most reliably when the heart is warmed when we come into contact with people we admire and love and we consciously and unconsciously bend our lives to mimic theirs. And then he says, we don't become better because we acquire new information. We become better because we acquire better loves. We don't become what we know. We become what we love. What about for you? Who spurs you on? Who challenges you from the shadows? They don't sit you down and say, okay, bro, locker room pep talk. I'm going to challenge you, but you're challenged by the way he lives his life. Who has made vulnerability safer for you? 
Who has demonstrated mercy to somebody that should have gotten a taste of their own medicine, but from this friend, they got mercy and compassion? And it made you go back into your life and your spheres and say, wow, who's changing you? And who are you changing? Who would look to you and say, yeah, he's the guy, she's the girl that I'm learning what it looks like to live in this kingdom of God because I watch her. This, lends, this lands us almost at a place of application. And I know we haven't even really looked at the passage and that's not by accident. But it prepares us to now look at these things as Jesus describes a few more facets of the diamond. Now we know how that first gets there through God's sovereign work in your life, through him making you new, recreating you. And also we know how that grows. It's not less than being around other Christians, opening up his word, exposing, being exposed to this king, to Jesus, and his contagious character and love, and being exposed to each other and other people's contagious faith. Well, now we know what to do with these things when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. What does he mean? Merciful people are merciful because they've received mercy, right? Jesus says about this sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. He says there's a direct correlation to what you think God has delivered you from and overlooked in Jesus and forgiven and what you're willing to forgive others for. Spurgeon said, if your Savior is great, if your sin is great, your Savior is great, and if your sin is small, your Savior is small. Those who know what it's like to receive just life-changing, refreshing mercy are those who give it. Mercy is different than grace. Grace deals with the guilt of sin. Mercy deals with the consequences of sin. Grace covers the guilt, mercy lifts the burden of what the sin brought about. Here's a couple of examples. Mercy toward the really insecure person who keeps hovering around you and annoying you all the time because they haven't gotten over their anxiety, they don't have any self-confidence, their identity is in their popularity, whatever, and that insecure person just kind of flutters around you. Giving them a taste of their own medicine is ignoring them and saying, that person is so annoying. But a little burst of heaven on earth is giving that person mercy, which is saying, I don't exactly know the roots of this insecurity and them kind of always being my sidekick, but I, can, I'm gonna, I want to show them mercy and compassion because the consequences of this sin pattern in their life mean that they don't really have any friends. Nobody invites them, nobody includes them. Mercy recognizes the consequence, the damage from a sin pattern and says, um, I won't use that against you. That's mercy. Mercy towards the girl who just broke up with the boyfriend who made her disappear from your friendship might look like saying, man, that really hurt. I felt so used when you disappeared from our relationship for a year. But you're hurting and you need a friend. You haven't been a friend to me, but you're going to find a friend in me. That's mercy from someone who's received it. What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the pure in heart? What is this purity of heart? He's not just, he's not, 
so much talking about cleanliness of heart here, and we know this from Old Testament scripture that this is built on. What he's talking about is singularity of heart, an allegiance of heart, uh, an undivided heart, a heart that's genuine and sincere. It's not a person that wears a different mask or costume depending on which friend group they're around. They don't play down their Christianity when they're in this group and play it up when they're in this Bible study. They're not a different person here than they are in three hours when they're back at their house alone. But there really is just a gentle, simple singularity of heart growing in them. What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the peacemakers? Two things. Those who make peace with people, people to people, which isn't Southern niceness, super sugary, oh, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. But perhaps sounds more like, um, that was a big deal, that really hurt. Um, or, I don't really know who is at fault, will you forgive me? But I also need to know how you really hurt me in that. Um, I, w I don't want to have this wedge between us, and I know time doesn't heal all wounds, and so I want to come and talk to you about it to make peace, because I want to have this relationship. That's peacemaking. Peacemaking is also pursuing peace between your friends and God. Be being a bridge between friends of yours who do not know this beautiful king and this beautiful king. Being a bridge of peace between them and him and evangelism and invitations in what Jonathan and Andrew did in that living room back in the day. Now what happens if you live this way? It's all a bed of roses skipping along. Is that what Jesus says? It's not. He says, blessed are the persecuted, as he ends this description of kingdom character in the heart of the kingdom. Blessed are those when people insult you, and you're like, how would people ever insult you? Don't you want to be around these kind of people? Well, these kind of people are illuminating. They're light, and they shed light on dark corners, and they expose where the kingdom of self is ruling and reigning. They expose where the kingdoms of the world have a foothold, and that produces a lot of awkwardness, a lot of tension. Perhaps it makes you wonder, what are those roommates going to say when I go to bed um, about me? What's her deal? Why is she, like, not fun anymore? That's social persecution, being misunderstood. And it comes from irreligious people and religious people. It might be people who think you're unloving and not compassionate and bigoted uh, because you really, what you really want from other people is life not just temporary happiness. It might mean from religious people you get mislabeled because you actually believe and take to heart what the prophets have said throughout the ages. Uh, you think justice is important and some of your friends label you woke and dismiss you. And so he's gone liberal. That's persecution too. And it comes from both sides. Jesus says you walk with me, you walk down the path that I walk down, you'll experience what I experienced, which is pushback, misunderstanding, persecution, dismissal. But it also is the very path that brought life to the world, right? It's the very path that opened up a door for heaven to come and colonize earth and to unleash this kingdom here and now, beginning now in people like our lives. So friends, this has been a lot 
But I want to go back to that question and leave you with this tonight. Of is this kingdom present in you? Are there any, is there any evidence of these seeds, of these seedlings, of these saplings growing in you? Is this what you want for yourself, for your house, for your neighborhood, your campus, your world? Or is it foreign to you? If it's foreign to you, there is a king here who we've already shown receives people like you. And if you want more of it, this king wants more of it in you too, and he'll give it to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray uh, that you will do just that. Give us more. Open up the floodgates of this heavenly kingdom coming into our lives and our neck of the woods and our campus. We want to see it more in RUF. We want to see it in UGA. We want to see it in Athens. We want to see it in our lives. But the best news of all is you want that more than we do. And you are bringing it to common fullness. We pray this in your name. Thank you.